This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Ahmad Fuad Rahmat. Welcome to Night School, the show that explores key themes in history, the social sciences and the humanities. We critically unpack theories, frameworks and social phenomena, the better to understand how society works. Each week we discuss a classic text, theme or an idea that we hope to shed light on the world around you. This week we're going to take a turn into the question of decentering knowledge and to join us to do that is Dr. Lawrence Ross. You are a senior lecturer at the uh, Academy Pengajian Melayu at University of Malaya. Welcome to the That's show. Right. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be back. And I kind of want to contextualize this discussion in light of a project that we're both a part of, sponsored by the Canadian High Commission, which is, uh, and it's yet to be titled, but the idea here is to extend dialogue through art across spaces, right? And these spaces are, it could be regional, it could be national in terms of having one partner from the uh, Indonesian Migrant Workers Union to collaborate with one of our artists. And we're scheduling the exhibition for February. Mm-hmm. So right now, the artworks are being produced. A lot of internal discussions are going on with regards to this question of difference and how to bridge them. And uh, we've benefited a lot from your insights as well along the way. So uh, we look forward to expand that and have this conversation with you today. So thank you for joining us. Thanks. So I guess one of the interesting things that we've encountered in the process of producing this project is that interplay between difference and similarity, right? Because this is still a very Malaysian-centered project and uh, it's caught us by surprise in a lot of ways. The pairings of the artists with the location partner that we thought would be challenging turned out to be smoother than we anticipated And the pairings that we thought would be easier has turned out to be very, very challenging. So a lot of that we've realized is down due to the fact that there's a lot of unpredictability when we think about, you know, what is similar, what's different. A lot of times it's just projections, right? So you are an ethnomusicologist. You've navigated this terrain a lot. So perhaps as a start into this discussion, tell us a little bit about that challenge, about, you know, identifying what's quote-unquote the same and what's quote-unquote different and navigating that. Yeah, I think this goes back to one of our first conversations, in fact. When we first met, you know, we were talking about the perceptions of the city folk Mm -hmm. versus the rural perspectives and how they're so different. And that is a big challenge because there's a real gap of understanding between the two. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say especially, but there is a deficit of knowledge about the rural areas among the people who live here in KL, which I I encounter every time I go to a forum and listen to people talking about, you know, the Malay heartland and talking about the, just in general, about areas that exist beyond their sort of horizons. So I think one of the nice things about this project is that it tries to sort of fill this gap remedy, these differences. From my own perspective, I actually came to KL rather late in my experience. I've been in in Malaysia on and off since the late 1980s. And until I really got settled here, I've been working at the University of Malaya for, for more than five years now. I spent most of the time in the rural areas. Mm-hmm. So my perspective might be a bit biased on the other side from the rural-urban divide. But it's not to say that rural people don't experience urban life and urban experiences are not deep to them. They are. I mean, these people go back and forth. They are not, you know, isolated by any means. And the peninsula is small and interconnected enough that 
a lot of shared assumptions pervade both spaces. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you do have this legacy. I mean, if you go back, you know, 50 years, people were less likely to venture far from their kampong. Mm-hmm. You know, they were, I mean, you had tigers, you had bandits, you know, you had things keeping them pretty much in place. Now, of course, that's changed a lot. I came to it, you know, much later than this, this ideal rural mm-hmm. Malay, you know, sort of isolated village. And in the 80s, that was when that image just gathered a life of its own, right? Because the intensity of the rural-urban divide was being felt at that time in a way that maybe today we take it for granted that there is this divide, but back then they were trying to negotiate it, right? So you can see it in films, exactly. you can see yeah. it in novels where mm-hmm. they're wondering, well, what's my identity now that I'm no longer a part of the kampung or I'm no longer a part of my kinship, right? That's right. Uh, yeah. So that's, to me, as a researcher, I look back to that decade as that decade of anxiety. Yeah. Right? I mean, Sha'alang was just established then. They had not really solidified into a community that is today, 30 years later, you know. So I think you're right to historicize this difference. It's not this thing that we take for granted and we speak of it as if always already there. This is new, it's created by circumstances that were political in motivation and that we have to keep this in mind when we think about yeah. these different spaces. Right? And where are we today? I mean, that's the ultimate, the ultimate question that we're trying to look at is, you know, given the past, that does inform our sort of perceptions of today, but there are some unique features about today in the fact that people are so mobile that they go back and forth between city and country. They have access to everything that we have in the cities through their media devices. There's not really that much that is different in terms of the infrastructure, the accessibility, but the mindsets are still different enough that we should we should pay attention to those differences. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the process of articulating what those differences are, because I think as you're doing field work, we don't know what the differences are yet. Because like you said, especially in the Malay case, which we're using as a case study here, a lot of it looks like what people in KL do. Mm-hmm. Same cuisine, maybe same types of humor, maybe more emphasis on certain ways of talking, right? But then maybe as you go deeper, then you realize, okay, I'm a different place right now. So tell us a little bit about how one arrives to that point, right? Because... This is something maybe you establish only through time, through building certain trust, through earning a familiar sort of bond with them over time, right? Yeah, yeah uh, you have to make yourself you know, accessible to the people that you interact with. You have to, um, you have to make friends. Mm-hmm. And I mean, a lot of this is not about, you know, quote unquote research. It's about developing bonds with people. And what's happening is really a microcosm of just the whole... Malay world in general. I mean, the Malay world has these sort of uh, challenges, these dichotomies between what is the overarching idea of what is Malay versus the, the regional ideas of Malay, the, the Kedahan, the Kelantanese. The, everyone wants to express themselves as being, you know, as part of a larger family, but at the same time, their individuality within that family is still very important. So paying attention, paying heed to those types of very sort of idiomatic expressions of place is an important first step that we try to at least understand that the language, the cuisine, the culture, all of this is very much a a local expression that if we want to, to, again, make friends and develop our bonds with the people that we have to dive into as well. Yeah. One of the earlier stumbling blocks that the project encountered was articulating or characterizing the power that we have by we as in the people behind it, the networks involved in it, in the sense that Canada is a part of the sponsors. 
And that alone was a task in that there's a typical sort of, you know, presumption now, um, at least among quote-unquote urban liberals, that we have to approach subject matter with care because we have power and they don't, right? And it's a very feeble way of looking at things because in reality, our discourse, while very compelling to us, has very little relevance nationally. There are other worlds out there and their own power dynamics. And Mm -hmm. part of the problem is when we think that we can cause so much harm, even without really knowing these people, knowing that world, we're already coming in with very, very loaded presumptions, right? So Mm. where does power come in, right? I mean, granted, of course, we have certain privileges that maybe a lot of these, our interlocutors might not have, right? That's granted too. Mm. But given what we know of Malaysia, given how power has been established largely through certain appeals of Malay identity that might not resonate in the liberal sphere, right? How do you navigate that terrain in terms of like the advantages you have? Especially you, I mean, in full disclosure, you're an American, yes. right? A white man. So mm-hmm. uh, talk a little bit about that too. Well, economic power is probably the thing that's most obvious about the relationship between the city and the countryside. But I think it stops there because mm. there's a power of knowledge. The people in in the kampung, they are not, you know, without their own sense of, you know, self-importance or just their own sense of historical place, mm-hmm. that they have developed a refined and dignified culture, you know, that's taken millennia, centuries, millennia to develop. And in the case of our particular project here, looking at Silat martial arts, I mean, that in itself is a very powerful thing. And that mm-hmm. one, I think the tables are a bit turned because mm-hmm. they don't see themselves as weak. In fact, that's the whole, you know, being of a Silat warrior is based upon power. So as we discuss, you know, our worldviews versus their worldviews, yeah, we cannot go in with preconceptions that we have this particular power. Maybe economic, just because the cities tend to be places where people go to earn a living. So rural folk will depend more upon, you know, government subsidies for the rice farmers and the rubber tappers. The power is, you could say, it's sectioned off from each other. Mm-hmm. Powerful in some ways, but uh, not in other ways. And it's not just us here in the cities that are cognizant mm-hmm. of that fact. I mean, there's there's a lot of, you know, uh, sort of awareness of that in the villages as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and just to contextualize your comment there, uh, one of the components that we are including in the project is a Silat Guru mm-hmm. from Gurun Kedah, right? Although the particular form hasn't been finalized, but there have been conversations to the effect of getting them to be a participant of particularly the kind of questionings that we're uh, considering right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I guess it goes back to the question of knowledge production in that ultimately, like you said, universities, the major universities are in the Klang Valley area, right? And this is where the media is as well. And this is where the commercial class is as well. And knowledge will circulate here, right? In a sense, there is an advantage maybe for for you and me in the kind of what we do in that we can be the legitimizers of knowledge, producing papers and conferences that maybe the subjects we are talking to do not have, right? So, where does knowledge production come into this? Because mm. granted, maybe in physical terms, in spatial terms, there are advantages that they can appeal to, yeah. being of a certain history, being of a certain tradition, right? But then what we try to do through writings or works of art is to say that, uh, I wouldn't say to claim an authorial voice, but there is a presumption that what we're offering here counts as knowledge to be coded, to be archived, and to be included in 
a broader discourse, right? Yeah, I think we have to be careful about this idea of sort of being privileged in terms of the knowledge that we have mm-hmm. access to here because there is a bit of an illusion there that, mm-hmm. first of all, that the knowledge produced upon, you know, as, as it sort of that generally speaks to these relationships is in-depth enough, is accurate and correct. I would be a bit careful there. Mm-hmm. And academia, like we said earlier, you know, is its own echo chamber too, right? That's, that's it it exactly, presumes yeah. like institutional authority, but let's be frank, the readership is so tiny. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and then yeah. we go we go down, we turun padang, and, and then we realize that the things we're talking about actually, you know, just don't meet with the things that others talk about. There is a disadvantage to academic, or not academic, just education system in general that we find in in Malaysia in the sense that Malaysia was forced to accept an education system that was not native, that mm-hmm. was imposed from, you know, from the colonial period and has been, you know, kept on as the modern system. Part of what interests me is the way we get back to these, I want to say pre-colonial, but I don't want to ahistoricize, right. you know, what is what is knowledge, that we get back to at least giving some voice to the methods, the pedagogical methods that perhaps are more natural, that produce better results in terms of learning. There's a big deficit in terms of being able to meet the certain standards, the standards in English, science, and math, you know, among the the rural folk. But is that necessarily the approach that we will get the best results from? Mm-hmm. Um, I do a lot of work in the performing arts. So how were people taught in the past? The people of this region, not just in Malaysia, but throughout Southeast Asia, they learned through storytelling. They learned through the wisdom that was passed along through the rituals, the ceremonies. And it's been sort of lost because those things aren't given as much value or weight in the academic, you know, the scale of academic grading systems and syllabi that are produced. What if we took something like Wayang Kulit? Mm-hmm. And instead of, you know, the traditional way on Kulit shows, what if we took something from the history syllabus or the mass syllabus, but used that way on Kulit medium as a way to teach it yeah. so that this knowledge is gained through extra, extracurricular, not so much, extra academic mm. means. Storytelling is not just about the words. Storytelling is about the movements of the dalang or mm-hmm. the tukang cerita. It's about the music that accompanies it. It's about the context, where you're learning it, who you're learning it with. Mm-hmm. So if we could sort of restart, if we could just break down the entire educational system, which I'm not advocating, mm-hmm. but if we could do that and sort of rebuild the educational system, what would it be? What would the, the sort of local pedagogy be in that term? Interesting. I think you're right in that let the students, uh, in this case, have a voice, you know, and not just a voice, but put their imagination center stage, right, in terms of how they receive the material and how they would recode it for their times. Yeah, right? and so, when I teach classes, yeah. for example, I'll show my students a film of Wayang Kulit, and they're just wrapped. They're just so engaged with it. Not to say that they're not engaged with my my lectures, but... <laughs> visuals when, help these days, you know. Visuals <laughs> help, and visuals that they can connect to in a very sort of like, this is my culture kind right. of way. Right, interesting. Let's talk more about that in the second part of the show. And we can get into more details about subverting that difficult relationship between centre and periphery and, you know, how to think beyond that, right? So I'm Ahmad Fawad Rahmat, joined this week by Lawrence Ross of Academy Pengajian Melayu at University of Malaya. And we're talking about decentering knowledge. And this is Night School on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, I'm Ahmad Fawad Rahmat, joined this week by Lawrence Ross on Night School. And we're talking about decentering knowledge with reference to some of the impasses that Project Dialogue's current art exhibit that's in process 
is experiencing, namely to make sense of differences and how to have a fruitful conversation that would be fair to those differences and to do justice to correct some of the misconceptions that we, quote-unquote, we BFM listeners, urban liberal Malaysians, have, right? And you really provided a good sketch of the problem in the first part of the show, Lawrence. We talk about some of the uh, illusions that we have, thinking that we are, quote-unquote, the centre when matters are more complicated than that. And more dangerously, the presumption that what we're doing is producing knowledge, when it looks more and more likely to me that a better characterization would be to say, just our projections of what they appear to the dimension in which we socialize here. So now, is there a way beyond it? You know, because there's a cynic in me that thinks the best thing to do is maybe just leave things alone. They seem to be perfectly cultivating a universe, an entire tradition that doesn't require our intervention then what becomes of these questions that we're asking right now? Yeah, well, the problems, I think, they're much deeper than that. Just in terms of the economic situations in, in the areas outside of the capital, there's no work. The work that's available is not well paid. You have to think of those economic considerations first before you start to think about, you know, these sort of grander ideas of mm-hmm. knowledge and and ideologies the idea of the center and the margin, I think, is is fine. I mean, there are those relationships. We cannot limit ourselves to just that discussion. But if we're going to use that sort of framework, then we have to sort of go a step further. Once we arrive in a kampung, where is the center located? Where are the margins located? And then yeah. we will see within that kampung, we'll see even finer gradations of those relationships. So it's, it's a hall of mirrors. You're These right, things right. just keep on reproducing themselves at every level. There's a lot of hierarchy within Malay society that needs to be given uh, particular attention. You know, when you, when you go to any village or site within the region, you're not aware of it necessarily, but there are relationships that have existed there for, for years, that have existed there for generations between the people that we're meeting and talking with. And we're just walking into the first time. Yeah. So we have zero knowledge, you know, if it's our first time indeed, that we have zero knowledge of these relationships. And all of those are, again, they're opening up new doors. Mm-hmm. Being able to sort of at least make a, a small attempt to understand those can in themselves sort of tell us more about what is knowledge, what are relationships, what are power relationships, what are economic relationships. Mm-hmm. And from my perspective, the performing arts are just as steeped in those relationships as anything else. You look at the, the Gendang Silat, the performers within Gendang Silat have their own hierarchies. They have their own social rankings. Those who possess certain knowledge, those who are sort of newer to the traditions. So all of these things require an incredible amount of time. Doing very brief sort of fieldwork forays into the region doesn't do it justice, but we don't have much choice sometimes. We, yeah. We're limited by our resources. It, it sounds like that's increasingly the case. That I like the metaphor you use about the different gradations of these halls of mirrors that you encounter as you go deeper, and that takes time too, and that takes a certain amount of significant trust built in the process where you're just constantly perplexed at how much there is to to really explore. And then presumably this this humbles you. Yeah. We can't well. extrapolate either. We cannot take one village and say that's the region. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, for myself, you know, being a, you know, very clearly an outsider, I can know everybody within a village, within a community. They all know me. We're very close. But as soon as I move on to the next place, I'm new again. So mm-hmm. it's not exclusive to me 
being a, a, a Western yeah no no uh, definitely definitely foreigner but it does it does sort of give you a sense that that we all have that place that we have our place of familiarity we have our place of unfamiliarity yeah now where do you start thinking that you're onto something right because mm. you have to draw limits now at what point do you say okay I can accurately and safely say that I've encountered a quote-unquote discourse. Mm -hmm. And the discourse is uh, social scientifically significant, yeah. right? So where do you draw that line? Yeah, you have to test it. What I mean by testing is you have to, you have to take your ideas to the people that you are collecting them from and get their reactions. There has to be some sort of feedback. If the community themselves does not participate in, in the way that we construct knowledge, then I think our knowledge is dubious at best. Right, right. Now, how much of this is just down to personality? Because as you're describing the process, I'm thinking of like a lot of people, myself included, who can't cut it in that the grit you require to just adjust and continuously adjust to these different atmospheres, right? And microcosms takes a lot of endurance, takes a lot of energy and heart, right? And patience. And I don't know if the sort of cerebral types who are, you know, more accustomed to academic kind of discourse and thinking are necessarily adept for that sort of transitions, right? So tell us a little bit about the character required, you know, to go through these things. Like, what are sort of the interpersonal skills you need? Uh, you have to be a bit of an extrovert. I mean, you have to be able to go and just not be afraid to just walk into a crowd and introduce yourself <laughs> and, and make friends. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the most important thing. You have to be patient. You have to be able to go with the goal in mind, but not necessarily try to carry out all your plans in, you know, in one session or one day or one whatever, one week. This is a process that evolves over time. And you have to be constantly, as I said before, you have to be constantly receiving feedback from the people that you're involved with. Yeah, it becomes more difficult when you have actually, you know, other responsibilities that your life is not all about, you know, field work. You mm -hmm. have to balance that with your teaching if you're in the university or, or your, you know, administrative responsibilities. So delegating time, going in with a clear goal is, is of the utmost importance. You have to know the questions you're going to ask. Mm -hmm. You have to know the questions that you're thinking about. As I said, those are going to change certainly right. over time. But the starting points are crucial. The, yes. You just don't go in open-ended unless, of course, you're in a totally new place. But even if you're in a totally new place, you're going to ask questions that sort of try to get the landscape first. Once you establish the landscape, then you can sort of focus on what areas are of the most sort of the best potential Identifying informants. Mm -hmm. uh, informants is a very clinical term. You know, people that you relate with. Yeah. To identify the people that are well-suited or best-suited to help you is a process, I think, that you just sort of develop through trial and error in mm -hmm. a lot of cases. Now, just to clarify, how long has it been now that, that you've established this connection with the community that you work with in Kedah? Um, I've been in Kedah for quite a while, since the early 90s. Mm -hmm. I, I was married in 19... 93. So I've established relationships with various communities there. Mm -hmm. Not to say that everyone I know there goes back, you know, what it is, however many years sure, that is. Sure. But there, you know, you build upon that, you know, with, with the knowledge that I've accrued over the years, it makes it that much easier for me to to, to they probably know you now. You just walk around the area. They're probably, well, that's that white violinist. <laughs> yeah. <you're laughs> skipping through the, the paddy, paddy fields. Anyway, I'm just, I'm just being, Well, one, yeah, one uh, of the advantages of being involved in the <laughs> skipping through the paddy fields. That's a nice sort of uh, image there. It's probably true in some cases. But 
Yeah, I mean, playing, being involved in the Silat and Gandang Silat, the Silat martial arts drumming community, means that you have connections throughout the state, throughout the country. You meet people at competitions, at wedding, kinduri. So yeah, the people know me. I may or may not recognize them, but it's always a community feeling. Yeah, there's this word that comes out a lot in anthropological studies of Malays. You know, Lederman's work, Karsten's work, and it's kinship. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just this word you can't avoid. And it took me a long time to wrap my head around how significant it is, you know, in a sense of a, a shared feeling almost, right? Uh, it's not camaraderie, it's not solidarity, it's not necessarily community, it's not family either. But there's a, the ties that bind. And somehow this is what one needs to enter if one wants to invest in that sort of dedication to really, quote unquote, know that world, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, becoming kin doesn't mean that you, you have to marry into the of family course, or you have to be yeah. born within the family. It's, I mean, there are all kinds of people who just sort of appear out of nowhere and become incorporated mm. into the community. It's, it's very, very dynamic cool. and elastic, actually. I think we take it for granted, you know, that there's this hospitality or the potential of hospitality that can be earned yeah. right, through those sorts of interactions. I don't think we should necessarily sort of like idealize this as being something that only occurs within, of course not. within I mean this yeah, yeah. we we probably have the same, you know, circle of friends that come people come and go and we meet new people and get these interesting, you know, uh, new uh, relationships. So I think it just goes to show that kinship has a very broad meaning there. And I've seen this throughout my field work. When I talk to, you know, elders who have been involved in performing arts, for example, they'll say that this person just showed up, but then he became, you know, part of our yeah. group. And for decades, we performed But, but isn't there a fluidity there that you don't find in, say, uh, you know, our urban centers, right, where everything's increasingly privatized, even the most modest neighborhoods are guarded by private security, you know, there is this skepticism towards the other, the stranger, mm. that maybe, and I'm just guessing you can correct, correct me wrong, that the instances you just described points to a contrary sense of others, right? Yeah, actually, I, I agree with what you've said, and I've actually observed it as well. I think that people are freer at the margins. You know, when you get further away from the city, you sort of lose the social constraints in some, in some regard. I mean, not to say that in the kampung there are no social restraints. There's a lot of social restraints. Sure, the, sure. The, there's a lot of pressure. There's no privacy, really, in the same sense that we would think of here. But um, I'll give you another example. Along the Andaman coast, there's these islands that are sprinkled along the coast, which have mix of you know various people, Malay, the Orang Laut, the Orak Lawoy. There are Thais that have migrated there. There's Patan. There's Chinese communities. Very small communities sprinkled around. But what sort of I've gleaned from talking with these people is that those who have moved there, moved there to get away. Mm-hmm. They felt more free. They could live their lives, whether, you know, getting further away from religious pressures or social pressures was their motivation. I met one man who actually came from more. He's uh, since passed away, but he was forcibly taken to Thailand during the war by the Japanese. But he stayed there because he could stay and practice medicine. He wasn't a doctor, but he mm-hmm. could stay there and without those legal constraints that... Uh, yeah. that you just out at them, Lawrence. Not everybody wants to go there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I think you're right. In a sense, there are always going to be constraints, right? And sometimes we forget that too. And my students, uh, I realize the younger Malays now in their 18, 19 years old, they have now had an upbringing where the kampong is not really a live option for their identity. You know, it's, of course, it's there during Raya or whatever, but the sort of intensity of the longing for that sort of connection that we saw in the 80s and 90s 
just isn't quite there in the younger generation of Malay urbanites now, mm. right? Who are just coming of age, pretty much having a teenage life where malls are the only sceneries of finding your identity. Yeah. And they're looking for, they're looking at Malay magic, they're looking at the performance arts, you know, they're going to Pusaka performances with a lot of burning curiosity, right? And there is this tendency to idealise that past, right? Whereas I think based on what you're sharing today, we need a sober understanding of that difference, right? To recognise that, yeah, there are constraints here, but there are constraints there too, right? It's just different ways that the straightjackets fasten maybe, you know? And the question then becomes what constraints are going to offer you what sorts of mobility, right? Yeah. I really love my students because I see their development from when they first enter the university until they've, you know, graduated and some move on to do their postgrad degrees. And most of my students being in the Academy of Malay Studies, most of them are rural uh, Malay kids who come in not really knowing about these cultural things that I'm teaching mm-hmm. them about. And so they're a bit tentative at first and shy to engage with the the discussions. But as they move through the system and, you know, they'll take a couple of my classes along the way and then we get into more, you know, personal discussions, I see that they've sort of been able to do what you're just describing is sort of bringing what they've learned in the city back right. into their worldview. Their, I don't want to say kampung worldview mm-hmm. because it's not a kampung worldview right, anymore. Right. It's It's their own... Unique it's sort a of distinct uh, cosmopolitanism, sounds like. Right? Yeah. The cosmopolitanism in the Greek sense, the cosmos is your polis, right? The city is your universe in a sense. Or, But again, we go back to the problem of time in the sense that not everybody has the time to do that deep dive you've done, you know? Or not everybody has that range of perspective that your students have coming from the, you know, quote-unquote, you know, we're always at loss for words here at some point because, as you know, when we get to the finer details, the words fail us. But from the rural world to the centre, so to speak, right? And I think they're richer for it in a way that people who grow up in Bukit Damansara, Hartamas, their whole lives don't have that sort of elasticity, right? But we don't have the time for that sort of deep diving, especially for this project. <laughs> what do you suggest is the best option given that limitation? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, you're faced with a, a number of choices, none of them which are really satisfying in the mm-hmm. sense that we can't invest our time or we just, uh, it's not necessarily something that everybody wants to do, invest so much time in, in understanding these bonds. But just, again, opening up your mind and being more sort of cognizant, aware of the, the, the of that life around you is just as complex as the differences you know, between the city and the and the village, that all of these things can can sort of be enriching without going anywhere. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And one of the terms that I find more and more compelling as this project goes on is provincializing, right? Uh, this is from Deepesh Chakrabarti's book, Provincializing Europe. And I think the same critical attitude can be applied to the urban liberal perspective in the sense that I don't think we're quite as grounded of how provincial we are. Right. And that is freeing in a certain sense because that narrows our questions down, that clarifies what's attainable given the limitations we have. And that also, I think, puts us in a productive stuckness and realize that our epistemic categories just aren't enough to make sense of how vast the complexity is. Right. And maybe that's a starting point. Right. Rather than to think of knowledge as definitive, think of it as provincializing. So that's one thing that I think we're going to try to work with from here on, you know. Mm. Great. Fantastic. Yeah. So, Lawrence, we have to 
wrap up soon, but what papers or books or even things to look up, you know, that you think would be helpful from here on for this kind of inquiry? Yeah, um, I think we really have to look at beyond borders. We have to look at not beyond the physical borders, but we have to look at a way of, of looking at regions without their borders. The borders become significant up to a point, but there's so much give and take between regions. <coughs> Something that interests me a lot, a bit of self-promotion, I wrote a paper about, about the Changgung rhythm. But as it's, you know, it's, it's a famed cultural, how do you say, cultural icon of Perlis state, a border state, it's not really representative of Malay culture as much as it's representative of a particular region. So mm-hmm. looking at how things flow sort of seamlessly back and forth has been a very much of an interest of mine. Um, Alex Horseman has written about that particular border as well. Anything that has to do with sort of breaking down these walls or preconceptions that we have about things, I think is, is a very positive step. And that's something that I'd like to see more of, particularly within local academia. Yeah. On that point about walls and frontiers as well, so one of the things that I always remind my students is that the idea of an other time or an other world is a very modern construct, right? That presumes there's something beyond, you know, what, what we already conceiving in our minds, you know. So rather than thinking in terms of these hard others, right, we have to think in terms of fluidity. We have to think in terms of making those awkward adjustments as they happen. You know, I think that's closer to the kinds of predicament that we're trying to address than to think of those outside the purview of what we experience every day is other, right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, there's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of difference too. So it's about finding how they meet and how they blend, right? And what kind of questions there are in there. And I think because, like you said earlier, urban life has isolated us in so many ways, these quote-unquote non-centered spaces and places can reveal a greater degree of fluidity than we assume from our standpoint. Yeah. yeah, and we won't get this today, obviously, but the political discourse is very much driven by these ideological conceptions or idealized conceptions of the past, mm-hmm. which, again, if there's any sort of breaking down of those walls, I think it'll have to come from, from within society. Yeah. yeah. Okay, on that point, Lawrence, just want to thank you again for the conversations, always productive and fruitful to have you uh, share your knowledge. Or you can email the show at bfmnightschool.gmail.com Look us up on Facebook, Night School, just type that on the search space. Uh, or download our app at the Apple App Store and Google Play. And look up uh, Lawrence Ross's work on Google Scholar or the UM website. You'll find links there. I'm Amat Farahma and this is Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.